you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. When you think about certain constructs, your mind jumps to specific brands. For example, for many, Apple is the end-all be-all when it comes to a design-first mindset. Nike screams everyone is an athlete, while a company like Netflix is what we associate with streaming and creative content. IDEO is the company that is synonymous with both design thinking and wicked problems. Today's guest, Melanie Bell, partner and managing director of IDEO San Francisco will discuss both of those concepts, but I did want to hone in on this notion of wicked problems before we dive in. Wicked problems are these large problems like poverty or gender inequality that are broken down by design to be solved in a way that puts the consumer first or what we know as design thinking. When I started the Win-Win podcast, I saw it as one way of solving a wicked problem. Designing a product that wasn't going to directly close the gender gap with a single episode, even though I wish that were true, but really honing in on a problem space, which showed us that there were not enough mentors in innovation industries. Melanie and our conversation today remind me of why WinWin exists. She discusses her 13-year trajectory as partner and managing director and provides insights about helping organizations reinvent themselves and connect with customers in new and meaningful ways. I hope that whether you are just starting out your career or are sitting on the C-suite, that this episode enables you to do your part in creating an equitable future. Hi, Melanie. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hi. Nice to be here. We're so excited to have you. So you are partner and managing director at IDEO, a global design company which creates positive impact through design. I'm always so excited about the amazing guests that we've had on this podcast, but I'm just going to say it like it is. IDEO is the mecca of design (laughs) thinking and design strategy as a practice. A little fun fact about me, I did my undergrad degree at Parsons School of Design and IDEO was essentially our curriculum. So this one is extra special to me and I know it will be to so many people studying design out there. So As we begin, before the last 13 years, um, you had a background in things like licensing and working on brand initiatives at Virgin Entertainment and as a consultant and a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley. Back in those more what you would call traditional times in your career, was design and design strategy in your purview? Great question. Not really. Um, not at all. I think I predated a lot of kind of the early conversation of design being infused into kind of business school education and those things. But what I did realize as I started to move toward design and IDEO um, was that there was something between the space of what's possible and having enough space to explore that and to make that real and then kind of getting into the nitty gritty and the weeds of what's tangible, right? So kind of like, like you were mentioning, like understanding all the ASTM rules around how you make a toy, right? And that a three-year-old can't swallow it. And so design ended up being something that when I found it, like the big aha, that it's like, this is it. Like, this is that space where I can dream big and also kind of get into the meat of it and make something really amazing happen. You did start at IDEO as a business lead 13 years ago. Was there 
and a specific opportunity that led you to there? How did you get your foot in the door? I will tell you a probably a, a, a like a dirty secret sort of, which is um, when I saw the job description, I fell in love with it. Um, so it was this idea of kind of creating new opportunities, identifying clients. So a lot of my background in licensing um, and business development and strategy all came into play, but I didn't actually know what idea was. And so I had to do my homework through uh, the research process. And I think that really helped me get my foot in the door because at the time, so many people were excited to work at IDEO. And part of what the vetting process was is like, well, do you want to do the job that we're hiring you for? Um, And in fact, mine was the other way around. I wanted to do the job. And then I was super excited to figure out what IDEO was and how I started to step into that space. Something else that's really exciting about your background is that you have an MBA, but it's definitely more of a generalist uh, background that you have. How have you navigated being more of a generalist rather than a specialist in your career? You know, it's funny when you look back at all the different choices that you've made, each one may not, like each leap may not make sense, right? From one to the next. It's like, how did I go from sociology to business? How did I go from investment banking to management consulting? Um, But it's almost as you look back and start to thread them back together, um, that it all makes sense. And so a lot of it was about building a toolkit, right? So I have uh, analyst toolkit, I have a strategy toolkit, um, I have a negotiation toolkit. Um, And so that even though those pieces were very generalized, it was all of a sudden putting them together in the context of the work that I do now, that I was able to start to specialize more and say, well, how do I apply this in the context of building a portfolio or creating a new line of business? Um, And so the generalist piece actually helped, probably not incredibly by design, but once I got through those pieces, it was kind of the assembly of them that was exciting. And then what does a day in the life really look like? What sort of work do you do and um, how do you approach it all? A lot of my focus right now is working on systems change work. Um, And what that means is I look at kind of wicked problems like caregiving, aging, the future of work. And so the course of my day is kind of both breaking those down to kind of like, well, where are we going to start? What are the ways that IDEO is going to infuse ourselves? Are there partnerships we should be building? Um, How are we going to work with specific clients? What are the questions? How do we take caregiving as a space and start to get into specific questions like, getting dad to be more involved in care or figuring out concierge services for adult children that are taking care of their aging parents. And so most of my day is doing the business development for that. It's figuring out how we actually solve that and what design disciplines we bring to bear. It's working with teams that are working on that work. uh, And then sometimes having the opportunity to talk to folks like you uh, about the work that I do. Right. And a lot of your work that IDEO generally does is this future business industries and future planning. And I'm sure COVID maybe threw a wrench in all of that. So how has COVID impacted the ways in which you navigate client engagement and thinking about the future as a business? Yeah, it's really twofold. Um, One is COVID has illuminated so many things that were broken in our systems, you know, like going back to the caregiving example, it's like parents working from home, the educational system, the future of work are like, will employees actually go back to work into space? And so from that respect, COVID kind of shone a light on so many things that we were talking about that people might not have seen as problems before, but all of a sudden now it was kind of really, you know, in clear um, view that they could actually start to see them. Um, On the flip side though, it's like, 
in the context of many companies' businesses, they're also trying to decide when do they start to tackle these questions, right? Because there was the emergency of managing through certain moments, but then some industries really getting excited about taking up the reins of like, this is a moment to build back. Like our business model was kind of trucking along, but now that everything has changed around us, it's like, how do we use this moment to really rethink our strategy, rethink things like equity in the workplace, rethink um, circularity and how our products actually kind of come back to us as opposed to kind of just become waste. And so that's been a really exciting outcome um, of this moment. I think I really appreciate the way that you're seeing the opportunity space in COVID, but I I definitely don't want to undermine the challenges that it has come with. So something I wonder about is how do you think a company or a brand can innovate in a time with fluctuating financial security? Yeah, I think it is to your point. Um, a bit about it is about focus, right? It's like understanding to where should you be putting your attention in terms of building back and and not just for maybe even your own financial gain, but the role that your organization actually plays in terms of your employees, in terms of your consumers, um, and in the broader world. I think the other thing that you're highlighting, which is really important, is that this has been such a devastating moment for so many people, personally, professionally, and you know, there's something not just about the opportunity, but the responsibility that so many of our clients have. Um, and part of my role, I think, is helping them to see that, to see that it's not just about gain, but that it's also about taking on and envisioning a new role for yourself where you're actually doing well and doing good at the same time. So with that in mind and all of the changes that have happened, how would you say you define innovation? And- um, it's definitely more complex because of the questions that I take on. Um, usually it requires like multiple partners and um, things that I'm thinking about in outcomes in arcs of years, not just weeks and months, um, which I think innovation can sometimes feel like post-it notes and sticky dots and like brainstorming, right. but it's like, it's the commitment, right? To that longer arc um, that really is kind of innovation come to life. Um, so I would say innovation is the opportunity to rethink and reimagine the ways that you create products that you put out in the world and the ways that you actually work. Um, I think it's both. And I think that also applies to things like not just products and services, but how are you creating um, environmentally sound business practices? How are you creating a culture um, in your organization that allows people to actually show up um, as their full selves and really embraces that in true ways, not just um, in language, um, but in action. Um, And thinking about, you know, back to the product and service portion, um, how you're actually designing to be inclusive, right? To, To think about not just like extreme populations, but to be thinking about how are we serving all of the people that can benefit from the products that we're creating. So I think for me, innovation, uh, the aperture has opened um, from what has been like market share or market growth to really thinking much more holistically about your organization, the role of your organization and um, the impact that it has. So we've had some guests come on this podcast and of course share different ideas about, you know, is incremental innovation better or is breaking the mold completely and starting fresh true innovation. So where do you sit on the spectrum of that uh, conversation? Do you believe that things need to be truly broken to be innovated? I think it's both. Um, I think you have to start where you are, right? And if you're 
if you're an organization um, that's trying to take incremental steps, like the best next step you can toward a larger innovation goal, that's great. Like, I don't want to stop <laughs> that process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to embrace the people that see an opportunity to really break things and start again. Oftentimes what happens, in fact, when you do the breakthrough work, you have to identify the small steps, right, to start because you don't go from zero to 100. And so kind of what are those places that you start with? And then often for um, the people that we're working with that are looking at incremental innovation, you're starting to lean into really big questions, right? It's like strategic choices that you're making that don't just affect that one decision, but multiple decisions. Um, And so I hope to kind of shed light on both sides um, so that you can do the small to get to the big. I completely agree. And I think you can't really talk about innovation without talking the design about the design strategies that are a part of it. And design thinking, of course, is a huge one. And the president of Frog Design in the past has said that it has become a form of corporate entertainment. Um, I'm curious what you think the state of design thinking is today and whether you think that companies can truly embrace it in this day and age. Yeah, I think... Um Design thinking, I believe, is highly relevant. The hard part is, is that if you see it only as a toolkit for ideation, right? Like if you take it into its smallest increments without the commitment to like what happens once you get that idea, like how does that challenge your system? How do you start to implement it in different ways, right? You have to extend um, not just the tools, but what the exploration with those tools produce for you to actually start to make change. And so I think design is a tool that we um, leverage highly, but it's in combination with all of the change that an organization actually needs to make to make that happen. So I think the hard part for organizations is if they're learning the tools, but not um, necessarily knowing how or committing to um, the bigger arc of, okay, what happens when we start to produce some new ideas, then it gets pretty hard. Something else that is a big part of your background is this business background. And I think as companies themselves try to create innovation, something they struggle with is, you know, making the business case for innovation. As somebody with this incredible business background, how do you propose that we make the case for innovation? Yeah, it's, I mean, so much of it has to do with what got you here won't get you to the next place, right? And often what I ask my clients to do is like, remember what got the company here, right? So um, kind of back in the day, I wrote a love letter to 100-year-old companies um, because I actually love big old companies. I think they've created so much value. They've gotten to where they were. They've institutionalized things that kind of matter to people and they employ a lot of people. But there was a spirit that started it that really was the beginning of like a new idea, a new space, an unmet need. And so how does an organization hold on to that, even though they're established? And so for me, that's the case, because it's really if you don't find that new solution or think about ways to evolve your organization to be future fit, someone else will. Um, And then you can get more specific into lines of business. um, And many, many of our clients are getting savvy now where it's also not just about direct competition, but replacements or the fact that, you know, 
certain products and services may get antiquated because new technologies come online or new ways of doing things come online that really leave that behind. And so how are you constantly looking at that horizon um, to understand if you want to be a company that's around 50 more years? What are you doing today to ensure that? So I love that you brought up this conversation about you know, companies that are 100 years old, because something else that's really, really important is, of course, the way that humans age and how we approach that. You led a one-year initiative called The Powerful Now to explore ways to reimagine product services as it relates to aging in the United States. How did that come about and how did you approach tackling this very wicked problem? Yeah, so it started off as a partnership between IDEO and SYP um, with this idea that aging is this multi-billion dollar market and opportunity, right? And just as you mentioned, it's like the products, the services, the caregivers, like all of the pieces around the system, yet there isn't a ton of innovation. And the products and services that are out there really are targeted toward almost like the death and decline portion of aging. Uh, And so we wanted to reimagine that. We wanted to combine kind of all of this data that people knew was out there, but still wasn't compelling them to do anything with the very human story of what it means to age. And with the, the experience of that people are having with their own families, but also the experience that they want to have um, in that. And so really the initiative was about telling this very human story of aging, of parsing out that it's not about kind of like the silver sneakers or all kind of death and decline, but that there's so much richness in between and so many ways that we live our lives. And then starting to use that as a way to step into, well, and how do we turn this into businesses and social innovation that would better reflect the way that we want to age, that we want our parents to age, that we want our friends to age. Um, So that's really how it came about. And um, a lot of our work was really around kind of telling that story, working with clients to identify, like, how do you move from, for example, being an assisted living center uh, to thinking about like, well, what's that experience like for families, right? Not just the person staying at the center. And What's that like for the paid caregivers um, who you're employing? And what does that industry need to evolve into? And also, how might we think about connection, right? This isn't about people going into isolated living situations, but living their fullest lives, even though they may not be as mobile or as agile as they once were. Um, So how do we think about community in that context? So that really was the eye-opener for me, that this was a space that design could step into, right? Because the future of aging was something that people weren't really seeing or wanting to talk about. But what we could do was make it tangible. We could make it aspirational. We could make it real. And we could start to design products and services and prototypes and pilots that started to let people see, no, you can build things. Like there are ways to innovate in this space and it takes multiple players. So what happens when you mash up a financial services provider um, with real estate? Um, and you think about an aging parent, all of a sudden the doors start to open up um, in terms of like, wow, that's a really different way to think about this space um, and to innovate in this space. Something else that I think people often overlook is that design is not just slapping a new logo or something or creating even something as big as a as a brand, but it can actually be the connective tissue between the action that we can take to solve problems and the ability to visualize it. So 
really exciting to see how you were able to apply it to that kind of problem, as well as all the other ways that you apply design. Something that you mentioned that stood out to me about that powerful now was a partnership between IDEO and SY Partners. Somebody would say that these two companies are competitors. And so that's really incredible to see and seems to me to be very rare in the industry. So what do you think is the role of collaboration versus competition in innovation? I think it's essential, especially as we take on these system level questions, because no one actor can address them, right? And you need a variety of organizations with different expertise, different capabilities. And sometimes those partnerships are across consultancies and agency design firms. Sometimes it's bringing together multiple partners who might even consider themselves competition in the space. Like, what does it look like to have multiple real estate developers, right, in the room. Right. Um, and sometimes it's bringing together people that sit across the ecosystem in, in really interesting ways. Um, so, you know, example, if you're taking on kind of the food space, you can imagine, you know, a food manufacturer and a grocery store chain and a delivery service, right? So that when you're starting to think about new solutions that really address the needs of families, all of those require a role because the family is thinking about all of those pieces. They're not just looking at one company or one solution at a time. And so I think we have to respond by being multifaceted in the ways that we bring those solutions to life. It's funny that you talk about being multifaceted when in your own life, you can see in your career trajectory, there's so much innovation and different aspects to your career. But when you look back at it, is there anything that you would change if you were to do it all over again? Yeah, that's it's funny because it's hard when you look back because you realize where you are is based on all of those things. Right. I think, you know, the time and investment banking, I'm glad I did it. It was hard, hard work. <laughs> and I'm sure, right. for, um, you know, just the hours that you pull and also the nature of that environment, right? Like I was a sociology major entering a financial services environment. And so up late at night, not infrequent to hear a managing director kind of screaming down the hall because my spreadsheets weren't working. But I think it taught me kind of resilience. Uh, it taught me how to teach myself a whole new craft because um, I had to learn that on my own. And so sometimes even those things you might want to erase might just be the thing that you needed to get you where you are. And then you did an MBA after doing your uh, BA in sociology, as you mentioned, and, and that was in the 90s when not too many women were present in the MBA landscape. So what was that like for you? Did you really experience the, the gender disparity? It was interesting. I think because I came out of investment banking at that point, I felt a little bit more prepared because I had been in an all-male environment. So, um, but there were definitely, you know, the whole idea of sharking uh, at Harvard is a thing. What is that? Uh, so it means that it like people are just trying to cut down other people's comments as a way because we were graded on a curve. Mm. And so even if you didn't have a great point to make, if you cut down someone else's, that kind of counted as airtime. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so there were definitely aspects of it that were challenging. Um, and so I think probably the difference, your point of like learning how to work in um, a predominantly male environment is now I'll just name that. Like I'll walk into a room and if I see that the dynamic is like everyone's jumping in, I'll just say, you know, I actually like to listen to the whole story before I provide comment. So don't think I'm not listening. I am taking notes. And when I feel like I have the picture, I'll then be able to provide you the kind of feedback that you need. And so I think what that does is it doesn't make me look quiet 
or inactive. It allows me to kind of own the space and the ways that I work um, and then provide value that way. Um, something else I was curious about was, you know, we talk about maybe being the only in the room or being a minority in the room. When you have had other women or people of color in some of those situations where you were a minority, do you feel like there was opportunity to stick together or was it more of a feeling like each one is on their own? Yeah, that is, um, I would say in the last kind of 10 years for sure, it has been empowering to be have more people in the room. And even as I was thinking about kind of what have my team compositions been in the last few years, it's not unusual for me to have an all-female team. In part, that's by design, but not consciously, which is sort of amazing. So it's like, that means that there are enough women in my context that I can pull the best of them together to make that work happen. And there is a shared experience and platform um, that allows us to kind of work together and and work in that space in a very different way. I don't think that was always true. I definitely, if I hearken back to the MBA days, um, I was fortunate to have a set of good female friends, but there was definitely a sense of like, if there's not enough space at the table and there's like a space for a woman, somebody wants to be it. And that means someone else can't be right. So that zero sum game has been something I've experienced, but I'm really happy to have evolved to a place where it's like, actually, we can make every seat at the table a seat for us. You have a really impressive background in organizational structure and culture design. When you think about companies that you advise or in general consider, if there was something that companies could really pledge to do to commit to help close the gender gap, is there something that comes to mind, whether that's a success story or something that you perhaps envision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where I've seen successful change is one when it there's a commitment at the highest level of the organization. And not just commitment, but belief that that shift will be the right thing for that company, will be a beneficial thing for that company. The second piece is recognizing that the change won't happen in weeks, but years, but that progress is critical, right? So demonstrating progress is so important in that process. Um, and then the third thing is, um, which can sometimes be hard to do, is like, how do you involve all levels of the organization in that process? Recognizing that people are on different journeys, um, people have different levels of power and influence, um, but that people need to see and feel and be a part of the change um, for the change to really take hold. Um, so those are some of the things I've definitely observed. Um, I think the other part is not to get disheartened when there are setbacks, because the, the work of building in diversity is not like someone applauding you kind of work, right? Like right. It's, it's not it's, linear. Right. And it, it's, it's the work that needs to be done. And success means that things feel different, not that someone points to a success, that you actually can see a change that people feel safe and valued in their environments. And so they're tangible and intangible elements to that. But it's almost like, don't ever expect the pat on the back. It's like you're doing the hard work in service of having an environment that's different. And that should give you the pride internally, but not necessarily the external accolade. Right. And the, the quote unquote metrics piece of it, you can have a bunch of women in the room or people of color, but if one, they're not staying there very long or they feel like they don't have psychological safety, did you really hit success? Exactly. Exactly. And so before I let you go, I would really love to ask you one last question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? 
Okay. Well, one month, one year, 10 years. Okay. So in, uh, in one month in my work specifically, I will be digging into some pretty big systems questions, you know, continuing the work in caregiving, but also stepping up work around circularity and climate. So kind of building that out. One year from now, I hope that we are establishing both kind of the industry and corporate level partnerships that allow us to deliver on that work, not alone, um, but that we're also approaching and employing new methods around radical inclusivity. So I want to be putting out into the world ways that we're designing with communities alongside communities. And then 10 years from now, I hope that the impact of that work will be that we are able to illuminate broken systems, interrogate those systems and have the confidence that we can actually do something about it with design tools, but also with communities and partners. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Melanie. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Zoya. So nice to talk to you as well. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.